Our uh, reading today will be out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I think, uh, you know, if there's, with the coronavirus stuff, if anything, it, it's helped us appreciate the opportunities to um, sing together, worship together, and gather together as a church. As I think about yes, or last week's sermon, uh, it was probably a hard message to receive about our default state as being dead in our trespasses and sins, but an important one. And as we read this one, we just are reminded of your grace, love, mercy toward us. I just ask that uh, you be with Stacy, that he preach with truth, and that you're with us as a congregation, that we may receive your uh, good word and uh, apply it moving forward. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Probably the best way to uh, segue from there is, you know, to, to think just like Tony prayed just now. Uh, you ever watched a show and uh, you're in it and it's kind of a drama and uh, as you watch it, each episode builds on the next one. So when, you know, I was a younger man uh, there's some flexibility in that time frame, but we, the two really popular shows that Kara and I watched before we had kids and all of that were uh, 90210 and Melrose Place, right? And they were like, they're like teenage dramas for people in their 20s. Um, and so as you watched, uh, you know, there, there would always be some cliffhanger at the end where, you know, something bad was about to happen and then it would stop. Right? And you were on the edge of your seat or your couch or whatever, and you had to wait. This is back when you just couldn't, you know, uh, stream everything and uh, kill the day and, and watch binge watch, you know. And so you had to wait a whole nother week, and the episode would start with previously on 90210 or Melrose Place. And, you know, you'd see this like sassy girl saying something, and this guy, his shadow, he'd walk in. It's like, what's going to happen? You know, is she going to find out or whatever? The best way to look at this is exactly as Tony prayed. When you look at verses one through three, it describes who you are on your own, who you are by nature, when you're left to yourself. And he says, You were dead. You were enslaved. You were condemned. This is who you are. You were in this awful spot. And so previously on Ephesians, this is who you are left to yourself. And when we read verses 4 through 7, we get to find out who you are by God's grace. Right? Just the change. And so there's this really powerful adversative uh, there when it says, but God. Basically, he's saying this is your story. You're... Your situation is a verses 1 through 3 situation. Your condition is a verses 1 through 3 situation. So you say, that's my story. 
Like, who are you? What, what do you like? This is my story. I'm a one through three guy. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was enslaved to the world, flesh, and devil. I was condemned before God. But God stepped in. And that's what this is all about. It's about how God intervened, how God stepped in. And we mean by that how he saved us, right? I, like, like, listen, I was here in this spot, but God stepped in. And he made all the difference. And so let's look at it that way. Let's, let's think about, let's reflect together as a church family. Especially if you're a believer this morning, I want you to think this way. This is who I was before Jesus came into my life. So what is it that I need to remember and reflect on so that I make sure that the gospel stays central? And if you're not a believer, I just want you to know, if you've, if you've never personally trusted Jesus, I want you to know I'm delighted you're here. Everybody's delighted you're here. And my, my prayer for you is that what you would do over the next, you know, half hour, let's be real, you know, uh, hour or so, um, that if you're not a believer, if you've never trusted in Jesus, that what you would think about who he is and what he's done for you. And then my prayer for you is that you believe, because he'll make all the difference. Okay? So this is what we're thinking about. We're thinking about how is it that God stepped in? How did God intervene and save us? And so we're going to break it down into these, these four parts. They're really simple to follow. Um, the first is that we see in verse 4 the motives of God's intervention. And why did God do this? What, what, what made him do this? And verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You know, quickly, if you're just to do an analytical scan of this, you would say, well, the two things, love and mercy. What, what moved God to step in and act on my behalf so that in spite of the situation I was in, I could be saved? That he would say, love and mercy. What does that mean? Well, listen, love's a familiar concept. Right? It gets uh, it's misunderstood a lot and all of that. But basically, you know, if, if you've got a good relationship, you have an idea of what love is. And it's the idea that you care about somebody and that you're committed to act for their best. That's what it means to, to love them. To have mercy is a kind of love. It's to show love for somebody who's down. You know, the, the idea that this is the kind of person who would be easy to ignore or easy to exploit because they don't have anything to offer you and they, they, don't, they can't threaten you. Right? So you just walk by them. They could just be, they could be there, but you could treat them as though they were invisible. And mercy says, I'm not going to do that. It's, it's love that basically says, okay, you're down and you're in this vulnerable spot, but if you're low, I'm going to lift you up. And if you're weak, I'm going to strengthen you or I'm going to protect you. And if you're invisible, I'm going to see you. Um, if you. What if you're dead, enslaved, and condemned? We get to see what God does with that. So what are you saying here in verse 4? What moved God to step in and intervene and save us? Basically says, listen, you were in this situation and God loved you. And so he acted on your behalf with mercy. Now, a couple of things so that we just... Don't leave this in some kind of an abstraction. Right? We should think of this in real close up. We should smell the smells and see the colors. Um, one is that we've got to see here that God is personal. He doesn't just say that God was loving. People do this all the time. They think they're loving. They just can't stand people. 
They just meet everybody in their, within their vicinity. But they think they have these really high notions of, of where they want humanity to go. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, God loved us. If you're a believer, you're supposed to read this and be able to go, listen, God stepped in because he loved me. If this is a personal thing. It wasn't just kind of some abstraction. And another is the decisiveness the all-in nature of it. It's not, we weren't, you know, given our condition, we weren't on the street corner with a post, uh, you know, a cardboard sign that said, you know, we'll work for food or, you know, any help is appreciated or something like that. He didn't just glance our way, he was decisive. He didn't just throw a few cosmic coins our way on the street corner. This is what, Paul, what does Paul say? God is loaded with goodwill toward us. You know, he, his, his love for us is great, he says. Um, so he showed us mercy because he's rich in it. Like you couldn't, in other words, you can't measure, the way he talks about God's love and God's uh, mercy is that it's so great, you can't possibly conceive of it. You know, to step ahead a little bit here, a lot of people come into church and they're looking for God, but they, they rightly look at their past and they say, man, I'm messed up. And the reality of the gospel is that if you bear the, 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 the weight of guilt and sin of the world, that God's love and mercy is enough to address that. That's how powerful Jesus is. So the best picture of this is we think about um, uh, the, is, is the cross. And what, what Jesus did, Jesus' victory. Remember John 3.16? preached Miss Ida's funeral sermon, and I preached it out of John 3.16. God loved the world, so loved the world, how much? He gave his only son, only begotten son. Whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but will have eternal life. So you have this perishing world, and God steps in. He sends Jesus, who's going to pay an awful price. And if you put your trust in him, you, you won't be doomed. You'll, you'll have eternal life. You'll be accepted by God, God didn't just barely step in. God was all in. You see that? What moved him? Love and mercy. Next thing I want to point out is the timing of God's intervention. We see this at the beginning of verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Even then. Um, you know, a couple of things to point out to highlight. Sometimes it's really helpful to do this whenever we read the Bible. Is to think about how certain things are phrased. He doesn't just say, like Paul doesn't say it this way, again in the abstract, even though there were some trespasses. He says, even in our trespasses. So if you read this personally, if you're a believer and this is your story, you say, my trespasses, right? my sin, my wrong. Um, I, I, I was not a victim in the relationship between God and me. I, I was wrong. I did it. I deserved the mess I was in. Uh, my situation was verses 1 through 3. I did that. I was born into that family. I did it. I perpetrated it myself. And but what he says is, though they were your trespasses, even then God stepped in. Even when we were in the middle of our sins, right then at my worst, God's love to me is great, but it's been all him, not me. Even at that point, God loved me. What this means whenever we think about the timing of God's intervention is that God loved me when I was the hardest to love. I want you to think about something. We just talked about mercy. 
right? That's, that's love for the downtrodden, that sort of thing. I want you to ask yourself something. Who are you when somebody wrongs you? At my worst, when I needed it the most and I deserved it the least, God showed me love and mercy. God loved me when I was impossible to love. God's love to me is great in part because it's an in spite of me kind of love. I, people, you, if you think you're a loving person, how do you love the people around you when they're the hardest to love? When they're the, they don't have anything to offer you? Or they're the most difficult to get along with? Or they're miserable and they're really fighting where they are? God's timing, when he celebrates God's timing, he just wants you to know, not whenever you, uh, you know, think about it as a parent. Sometimes your kid does something and you're, you're proud because right there in front of everybody, he or she did the thing that really honored you and you could, so easy to celebrate. And that's whenever you go, that, you know, that's my boy or that's my girl, right? What about the opposite time? When... Uh, People are going like, whose kid is that? And you're like doing this, right? That's when God loved me. That's when God loved you. Is when the normal parent, when everybody's going like, whose kid is that? The normal parent's like, oh no, you know? And, and God is like, that's mine. He or she's mine. Okay, the timing of God's intervention. The third, the actions of God's intervention. This at the end of verse 5 and all of verse 6 here. It says, you know, uh, uh, but God being rich uh, in love uh, or because of his great love, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is really a cool thing that Paul is pointing out here. So when you think about Jesus' story, right? His history after the cross and burial, what happens? Jesus is raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So we kind of nutshell those in theological language. We go resurrection, ascension, and session. God raises him from the dead. You know, he ascends to heaven to that place he's vindicated and he seats him at, at, at his right hand so that he can reign forever. Here's the cool thing. What, what Paul is doing here is he's saying Jesus' story is your story. Right? It's not, he's not just the guy you cheer for. He's not just the one that you say, great job. What Paul does is he takes those three things and he connects them to us. So, Notice, just follow along and we'll see. He made us alive together with Christ. Resurrection. He raised us up with him. Ascension. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Session. You know, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Remember I said Jesus' story? Part of the Apostles' Creed says this. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And the interesting thing here is while every believer would go, yeah, of course, I know the story. I've, I've, I've read the Gospels. I've read Acts. I know the story that Jesus died for my sins and he was buried, but he didn't stay there. 
After that, God raised him from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he seated him at the right hand uh, to reign forever, right? The interesting thing is Paul's not writing about Christ here. He's writing about you. He's not pointing out that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul is saying that what God did is he quickened you and you're ascended and you're seated with Christ. Our distinctive as people, John Stott makes a you know, great insight on this. He's a commentator. He talks about our distinctive as people, as, as Christians. He says, it's not just that we believe in Jesus, we do. It's that God does something uh, so intimate, so powerful there, is that as we believe in Jesus and the Spirit of God comes into our lives, we're united with Jesus, and by virtue of our union with Jesus, we actually share in what's His. So Jesus was raised, ascended, and seated. And by virtue of your union with Him, you share that with Him. You're raised with Christ. You've ascended with Christ. You're seated with Christ to reign with Him forever. That's why He points out the nature of our salvation right in between. He points this out. He's going to say it again in the next passage. He says, by grace, you're saved. By grace, this is not a collaborative effort, right? There's not, uh, there's not something that you participate in in terms of the merit of your salvation. Everything is tied to Christ. Do you notice that as you read it? It says, well, you're made alive. How are you made alive? With him. Uh, hey, you're raised. How are you raised? With him. You're seated. Who are you seated with? With him. It's not a collaborative effort. You're saved by grace. Uh, there's no Christ, there's no salvation. In other words, God intervenes and, and Jesus has to do everything to earn your salvation or you can't get it. There's a complete reversal in, that, in terms of the actions God took for you, those three things, that what, what Jesus did has become your story because God connects you with him. You're, in your union with Jesus, you share all of that with him. And so that there's this huge reversal. Remember verses 1 through 3? You're dead. What does God do about that? What does he say here? He made you alive. Oh, you're, you're enslaved and condemned? What, what, where are you now? Well, you're freed. You're, you're seated to reign with Christ. You, you go from a slave to somebody who co-reigns with Christ. That's the nature of our salvation, is that you're saved by grace. You, when you were the hardest to love, when you didn't have anything to offer, you were no threat to God. You didn't have anything to offer God. Be- just because he loved you, he showed you mercy. And the victory Jesus won, he connects you with him so that you can share that victory. You were dead and now you're alive. You were enslaved and now you're raised and reigning with Jesus. That's a, I mean, that's a powerful thing that Paul says. Those are the, the powerful actions that God took uh, whenever he stepped in. And then finally, in verse 7, we see the purpose of God's intervention. He says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, that's purpose language, right? You read, so that. Like, oh, well, He's saying here's why. Why did God step in? Here's why God stepped in. And when he talks about in the coming ages, he did this so that something would be true in the coming ages. Ages is plural. He's talking about eternity. All the ages, you know, forever. 
He's doing something so that it'll have this impact forever. What is that? So he could show something. Now, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he talks about what uh, God was showing when he raised Christ from the dead. And he says, he, when he raises Christ, what God is doing is he's showing his power. But here what he says is he's showing his grace and kindness when he raises us and exalts us with Jesus. He's showing something a little bit different. So when he raises Christ, he's showing his power. When he raises us with Christ, he's showing his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. We're all these living evidences of what God has done, and we're going to be on display forever so that, you know, as Jesus is raised, everybody's going to be able to go, look, celebrate God's power because God did the impossible. But he did more than that. All these people who had no basis to expect anything from God, they didn't deserve this. They deserved the exact opposite with God. What did he do? He connected them with Christ. And he, raised them with, he raised them with Christ. Look at his grace. Look at the kind of kindness that he shows people like that. And the people like that are people like you and me. My family, um, it's one of the, is one of the early things that Kara, my wife, had to kind of figure out with my family. And she grew up in this area. I grew up in rural Oklahoma. And um, uh, we, met, we met down there, you know, at college and that sort of thing. And so uh, we'd, we'd go home and visit with my folks on the weekend sometimes. And after church on Sunday, we'd have lunch like normal people do. What, what we did something that abnormal people do, you know, like normal people don't do. We'd eat lunch, and we would sit around the table for hours. I'm not kidding. Sit around the table for hours and just catch up and talk about this or that, but tell stories. I mean, you know, ostensibly true stories, you know, things that happened and, and that sort of thing. But I come from kind of a long line of storytellers. There are worse names for that. But, you know, people who talk about the funny thing that they were in or the hard things or this situation or that. You know, my Uncle Lex, my great uncle, was a great storyteller. And, you know, my dad, uh, I remember as a kid telling me stories about how I grew up and stuff like that. I always loved listening to my dad talk about how he grew up. And, you know, he'd tell funny things about it or hard things and a lot of times good lessons out of that. Um, but I'm not, that's not the only part of that. The other part of it is we'd sit around for hours and as we'd tell stories, she got to realizing some of these stories you've already told. And you tell them again. You don't, like, abbreviate it. If somebody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. The time when, you know, right, like, cueing you that you've already told the story. You just totally dismiss that. And you start from the beginning and you tell it all the way through. And the reason my, I know that's kind of strange, but the reason my family does that is there's a way like this. I want you to think about, we, we treat those stories or those events sort of like a really good book. You ever read a book twice? Not most books aren't worth reading twice, but there are some that are. Lonesome Dove, if you've ever read Lonesome Dove, it's at least a two times through book, right? The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, that's, a, that's at least a two times through book, right? We treat stories like some, those are so good, or what about a song? If you listen to a song and you're like, that's a really good song, you want to hear it again. Or a movie, sometimes you watch a movie more than once. Well, we treat stories like that. God is doing that here. 
what he's doing, I'm, I'm saying God is, this is in part for my marriage. God is sort of like my family, right? Like, like celebrating and recycling the story. Except his story is, is the story of stories. And, and just like that, he's saying, why did God do that? When he says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's a great story. And what he's doing is so that it can be told and celebrated again forever and ever. It's the story that never gets old. It's the story that you look at and you marvel every time you see it and hear it. It's, it's the song that you love that won't ever leave your mind. It's the movie that you just love, the storyline and the drama in it. It's the book that you can't put down and you want to go back to it again and again. What he's saying is, is this is that, except this is the ultimate of that. What God did for you, even when you were at your worst in Christ... It's going to be the thing that you're living evidences of that on display forever so that the story can be told and celebrated and everybody can enjoy it again and again. All right. How did God step in? We get to see that in verses 4 through 7. You were verses 1 through 3, dead and enslaved and condemned, and God made you alive together with Jesus and raised you up with him and seated you with him in the heavenly places. You're saved by grace. You're saved because God's that kind of God. Because he loved you and he's rich in mercy. So what, what do we make of that? How should we apply a passage like this? You know that as the people of God, one of the things we want to do on a regular basis with God's word is we want to do two things. We want to understand it and then we want to apply it. We want to make sure that we get it. So we try to take pains to do that. And then as God's people, we want to say, okay, well together, let's submit ourselves to God's word. Let's receive God's word together. What are some things? Well, you know, when I was a younger guy, uh, we used to have this phrase, I mean, it was real common, you know, where somebody would say, don't be that guy. Like something comes up and they'd be, oh, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy, uh, you know, when uh, you invite a buddy over, you know, when you're in high school. Don't be that guy who flirts with the, the buddy's mom, right? That's like, that's not cool. Don't flirt with another dude's mom. Um, don't be the guy who talks in the movie theater. I'm not saying like when somebody punches you, I'm not saying that's right, but it, it's not all wrong either. If, if you're the kind of person who talks when people have paid good, hard-earned money to go watch a movie in a public theater, don't talk. People are there not to listen to you, but to, you know, to watch the movie. Don't be that guy. Or don't be that guy, this is just to help, this is a freebie. In case you ever show up to a funeral, don't wear a mesh shirt to a funeral. This is not, not cool. Don't be that guy. Don't be, I preached a funeral where the guy, I'm not kidding. You're going to think I'm kidding. I am not kidding. I preached a sermon or a funeral. Uh, this was years ago. And we waited for 30 minutes so the guy's son, who lived right around the corner, could be there. He was 30 minutes late to his dad's funeral. Don't be that guy. Well, when you hear the gospel, when you hear how God stepped in and made all the difference for you, how do you apply this? Well, don't be that guy. I'm going to give you three things. Number one, the arrogant Christian. You look at how God stepped in, and the last thing that you ought to be is arrogant. I mean, you know, like, just see all of verses 4 through 7. Uh, you're dead, enslaved, and condemned, and by grace you've been made alive, uh, raised, and seated in the heavenly places with Christ. God did all of that. So where's the room for any arrogance? You're saved by grace. Listen, our arrogance always steals God's glory or it's an attempt to. Because the way we act, 
is we act as though we deserve something or that we achieve something that we merely received. We act like as we got something as a gift that we never deserved and we couldn't deserve. We act as if we were owed that, as if we're worthy of all that. And the reality is that you're a display of grace. That's what the Christian is supposed to be. I got what I got by grace. It was totally on somebody else's merit. It's totally on the basis of what Jesus did for me. So I have a boast. But my boast is Jesus. That's it. I didn't, I didn't have anything to offer. And so it's out of step to be arrogant. It's, it's oxymoronic to be an arrogant Christian. We boast in Christ, but we don't have anything to boast of in ourselves. So when somebody walks through the door, they're like, man, am I, am I good enough to come here? No, actually, you might be too good to come here. There's, the only people who really can come to the cross are the people who know they're awful. The people who know that their sin is so bad that it takes a Savior's uh, blood spilled for them to cover it and to wash it away. The arrogant Christian. Number two, the ungrateful Christian. I've been given everything. Nothing has been withheld. You know, if you pop back to uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul starts by celebrating God, and he goes, and he, sa- he goes, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. I haven't, God hasn't withheld anything from me. Resurrection, future, glory. And I ought to be grateful. Question. Does my grumbling eclipse my gratitude? I mean, that's assuming I have gratitude, right? If I've been given everything and the world uh, and the devil can't get to it, it won't rust, nobody can steal it, nobody can rob me of it, it's secure in Christ. Am I grateful or do I grumble in such a way that I lead in and that's what people really see? You know, what, what's the first thing they notice about me? My complaints where everything's wrong. A lack of gratitude does at least two bad things. You get two bad things out of it. One is it undermines your faith. If you, if you just exercise grumbling, the problem is, is that you just don't have a grasp of truth. You're not realistic. Uh, you're somebody who lacks faith. You, don't, you lack the faith to appropriate the truth because you see the problems instead of the promise. And uh, you treat those, the, the problems seem all-powerful to you. Somebody who's constantly grumbling, what they say is, God doesn't have all the power, my problems do. My circumstances do. So you, you're robbing God of his glory whenever you do that, when you grumble. The second thing that's a bad consequence of a lack of gratitude is uh, you give a false witness. You, you indicate by the way you live your life that God is somebody he's not. Okay, and then you act as though you're hiding from everyone how good God has been to you and you suggest that he's different. The ungrateful Christian misrepresents God and doesn't love truth because you're acting as though God should have handled your life better. And you're indicating to them that if you're the display of what he does in somebody's life, are, do you attract people? Are you adorning the gospel? Are you corroborating the gospel? Or do they look at you and just say, I just don't see the powerful effects of that. So don't be that guy. Don't, don't be the arrogant Christian. Don't be the ungrateful Christian. And number three, don't be the unmerciful Christian. 
This passage, he says, God is rich in mercy to me. When, when the Lord teaches us to pray, taught his disciples to pray, remember the pattern of prayer? God forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. He goes on to comment on that. He says, listen, I mean, basically this is very hard line stuff. If you don't forgive others, you're not forgiven. You're going to be judged in the measure in which you judge other people. Um, he talked all over the place about forgiveness, and we're not to act as if sin isn't sin. It's never about denying the facts. It's just about answering sin with grace. It's about, it's, it's, it's about being to others what God has been to you. God extended grace to you because he's rich in mercy, and we're to be that to other people. You want to know if you're really loving? Who are you when somebody wrongs you? Do you punish them? You, you keep them under your thumb for a little while because they need to know, right? They need to know that you're not somebody to be messed with. Or do you have great love and because you're rich in mercy, you move to them? Because guess what? They're not always going to be at their best around you. You know that story. That's your story. So the idea that you wouldn't be merciful is way out of step with the gospel. The idea that you being wronged is the end of the world and it's the unpardonable sin. If you've been forgiven everything, you can forgive the things you've been wronged. Right, so don't be that guy. It's just way out of step with this great story, your story in verses 4 through 7 of how God stepped in and why he stepped in and how powerfully he did. The arrogant, the ungrateful, the unmerciful. So let me close with a couple of questions I want you to think about. Uh, the first one is this. What truth here do you need to embrace? What, what's been taught and that you see in God's word here, because I'm just a dude, but if you just think about what's in God's word, what has he made known that ought to actually appropriate, ought to embrace this, see it as true? Um, is it, I'll give you a couple of suggestions. Is it grace? Like, did you walk through the door and realize, you know what, I, I, I'd, I'd like to know God, I know I need to know God, but I keep trying to figure out how to be a good enough person? that i'm all for you trying to be a good person that beats you trying to be a bad person but you're never going to make it to heaven trying to be a good person you've already blown it right just like the rest of us in the room if you if if you're going to be saved by grace you're saved if you're going to be saved it's because you realize god's a gracious god and he made a way for me through christ maybe that's the truth you need to embrace i need to believe in jesus i need to trust in jesus to save me is it as a believer recognizing your place with Christ and living out of that, that you've been made alive together with him and raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places, so that you're actually somebody who lives with a little bit of courage and, and confidence and grace. What truth do you need to embrace here so that your thinking is accurate thinking, so that you see the world as it is? The second thing, what character here do you need to pursue? Is it Humility. By repenting, repenting of my pride. Pride is always this kind of expression of comparing myself to others. Pride is always a relational sin, right? It's how do I stack up against you and do I score out better and that sort of thing. If you're a scorekeeper, I'll just let you in. You're a very proud person and you, you ought to knock it off. It benefits no one. It's a toxin to your soul and you hurt people out of it. Right? But, but the pride, the idea that you've been given everything means that you ought to be somebody who walks around and goes, listen, I don't have anything to boast in but what Jesus did for me. 
Uh, how about gratitude? Uh, are you somebody? I, I try to do this. I have this reminder in my calendar every night at 9.15. So it just says 3T. A lot of you have been around. You've heard this, me say this for a while. By default, I analyze what's wrong in the world. This is kind of how I tick. Like if we, uh, uh, this can be good and bad, right? It, it can be good and bad. Sometimes you need to look at what's wrong and figure out what to do about it and how to fix it and that sort of thing. But I mean, there could be something that goes really, really well, and I'm always thinking about the next thing or uh, what could have gone better and that sort of thing. I can forget by my nature to be grateful for the things God has done. So 3T means it's an exercise that just says, all right, right now, think of three things and express thankfulness to God. 3T. Three things I'm thankful for. And I just try to do that. I want to, I want to have the discipline in my life because that's true. And I don't, I don't play games with God. I'm, I try to be thankful about things that are true that he's done, that he's given me, and express my appreciation for it. How about gratitude? Is that uh, a discipline, and exercise you need to pursue? Or what about mercy? Are you a hardliner? You know, like one of those people that nobody messes with you because they'll pay the price? Well, listen, you can be that, but you've got to be that on your own. You just can't be that with Jesus. Right? He has no room for that. And so if you're going to be that person, uh, you, you actually have to deny what God has done for you in Christ. And so uh, uh, because the, to, to withhold mercy is to withhold from others what God has given you. Right? And so are you going to extend yourself in mercy? Is that kind of a character thing? You realize I can be incredibly harsh. I can, I can be a graceless person. Um, so all that to say, you know, what, what truth are you going to embrace? What character are you going to pursue? Let me just close by saying this. You cannot answer the big question of your life without Christ. Right? The, you got problems, verses 1 through 3. You've already sinned. It's too late, right? You're condemned in that sin. You've been enslaved by that sin. You're dead in that sin. And if that's going to change, God has to step in, and he does that through Christ. If you're going to be raised, if you're going to be made alive because you're dead, that happens with Christ. If you're going to be raised because you've been put down, that happens with Christ because you're going to be raised with him. If you're going to be seated in a place that matters, you're going to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You can't answer the big question of your life without Christ. It only happens with him. And so here's the thing, I'd just leave you with it. If that's true, and it is, put your hope in Him. I mean, do it right now. Like, turn to Him. Do it, do it right now. You can do it right now, right here. And what you really need to do is just go like, Lord, here I am. I know I'm verses 1 through 3. I acknowledge that. What you say about me is true. All the evidence is in. This is who I am. And what I'm asking is that in spite of me, because I've heard you're this kind of God, in spite of who I am and what I've done, that you would save me. You've let me know in your word that Jesus is such a great Savior that he can take everything I've done and wash it away and make me alive together with him and give me life forever with him. Would you save me by grace? That's what I'd encourage you to do. Turn to Jesus because the, you can't answer the big question of your life without him. This only happens with Jesus, so put your hope in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the privilege of just being able to preach your word.
being able to celebrate with your people today. We get to just celebrate the way you stepped in. You know, you'd, listen, you're not, you're not gracious because we weren't that hard a case. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even at our worst, uh, you jumped on it. And you made all the difference. Thank you. And I, I would pray that as believers, you would strengthen us in this hope, in this truth, that we would live like people who have been made alive together with Christ and raised with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. And I pray that there's somebody here who does not yet know Jesus or that you draw on them to you, that you would open their, it takes you, that you would open their eyes and you would turn the light on for them and, and that they would call out to you right now and ask to be saved on the basis of who Jesus is, that they would believe in him and that they would share with us as we share in what Christ has done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.